0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome to New Books in European Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Jones and my guest today is Professor Mark Gilbert. His European Integration of Political History was published in September by Roman and Littlefield. This book has had three lives. Appearing first in 2003 with the title Surpassing Realism, Professor Gilbert updated it in 2011 as European Integration, A Concise History. Like its predecessors, this latest edition, now branded as a political history, is competing in the political science undergraduate market with textbooks like Desmond Dinan's Europe Recast, Wilfried Lloyd's Building Europe, and the recently updated European Union Politics and Policies from John McCormick and Jonathan Olson. Mark Gilbert is resident professor of international history at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Bologna. Raised in Lincolnshire, he graduated in politics from Durham University and did his PhD in Contemporary History at the U- University of Wales. Before joining SAIS 10 years ago, he taught at the Dickinson Liberal Arts College in Pennsylvania, and then back in Europe at the Universities of Bath and Trento. As well as European integration, this year his co-edited book Euroscepticisms was published, including a chapter by Mark on the intellectual origins of Brexit, Enoch Powell, Douglas J. and the British dissenting tradition. He's the Associate Editor of the Journal of Modern Italian Studies and is currently working on a political and social history of the founding of the of Italy's First Republic. This will be published by Rizzoli in Italy, by Penguin Worldwide, and by W.W. W. Norton in North America. Mark, welcome to the podcast.
1: Uh, well, thanks very much for inviting me, Tim. Um,
2: as I said in the intro there, uh, this book is clearly competing in the European Studies textbook market, but to me, it read like a... A classic narrative political history with a core argument, almost almost a plot arc. And by the way, not for nothing, it's a, it's a very digestible 280 pages of text. So a, apart from undergraduates, were you also aiming at a more uh, casual or, or more general reader?
1: Yes, I was actually. I've always tried to write for the general reader. I think too many academics nowadays uh, try to r- write for one another. Uh, I think the book is a general narrative history, as you rightly say, uh, that doesn't assume knowledge on the part of the reader. I guess I'm writing for either the bright 21-year-old undergraduate or a, a, a young postgraduate who really wants to know more about the European about European integration, or else, you know, a school teacher who wants to know more or a bank manager who wants to do more. Uh, I, I didn't Think of the book in any way. I hope the book makes a contribution to the academic debate, but it's not intended for academics necessarily.
2: Yeah, well, I, I'm speaking as someone who specialises in Europe, and in, in, in his late fifties, um, <laughs> you know, I, I found it very useful too. It was it was a very good read.
1: Well, it might be um, a, it might be a generational <laughs> thing because I'm in my late fifties too, and I suspect that that things started to change in academia Some, in the nineties and early two thousands. It became far more professionalised.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, and what made you decide to update the book now?
1: Now, that's a very good question, and I think, um, despite the fact I've lived in Italy for a long time, I've remained very British, and I think if I had to identify one thing, it was Brexit. Um, You know, Brexit really was the main impulse. Uh, Britain's leaving the European community was not the first time that a country has left the EU. Most people don't know that. Greenland and Algeria withdrew from the EC. Uh, but, you know, obviously, Britain's leaving was of a different order of magnitude. And also, I think Brexit was the kind of thing that wasn't supposed to happen. I mean, I won't say that, Brit- that people thought that uh, European integration was inevitable. But there is a kind of rhetorical uh, inclination to suppose that, um, that the EU had history on its side. Uh, I did myself, you know. If I look at the first edition of the book, surpassing realism, it's uh, clearly—I uh, wouldn't say bias. That's the wrong way. But the argument, the orientation of the argument, is clearly more along the lines of the EC is a, is a political entity who's uh, on the right side of history, if you like. Uh, And as the different editions of the book have come out, I think I've just had to adjust that. Um, And Brexit, I think, calls this uh, sense of ongoing progress in European institutions into into doubt. I mean, Britain is the second largest economy, arguably the most important geopolitical power in Europe, and for whatever reason, uh, a very large number of its people didn't want to be in the EU anymore. I mean, it, it, it unquestionably... Changed the game so to speak and so i felt it was time for a new edition
2: well you you point out that you'd had uh, long arguments with your with your brother about this at, at the beginning <laughs> of the book
1: <laughs> yes well actually i think uh, my brother will be delighted to hear this <laughs> he, he's been extraordinarily useful i mean he's a, almost the classic uh brexit uh you know skilled worker uh very patriotic by no means anti-european but completely convinced that uh, European integration is taking away time-honoured British liberties, and uh, I have to say, in 2016, actually having a member of the part of of uh, a member of my family, which was so uh, so so clearly in the pro-Brexit uh, camp, was actually quite helpful because I think within within academia there was a certain tendency to assume that the referendum could only have one outcome. Um, And, you know, it's really quite helpful to go to the pub in Lincolnshire sometime and hear what what most people think.
2: How does he feel it's going so far?
1: Uh, I I, I don't know. I think there's a, a, (laughs) excuse me if I bring in uh, an Italian word here, smarimento. I think there is a sense of uh, people, smarimento means a sense of... (laughs) unease not quite sure whether the right thing has been done but nevertheless a definite commitment to to staying the course um i i i I thought the 2019 british general election was very interesting uh if you think about it we had a year 2019 a quite extraordinary year from the point of view of british parliamentary politics in which Governments were defeated by record, record majorities but still didn't decline, resign, in which the Prime Minister prorogued Parliament, in which the, 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 the High Court found uh, actions of the British government, uh, if, if not illegal, then certainly unlawful, uh, and yet at the end of that year... Uh, you know, Mr. Johnson won the election. He didn't get an absolute majority of the votes, but he did get a higher plurality of the vote than Tony Blair had in nineteen ninety seven. I, I, I think it's very difficult to say that the British didn't know what they wanted by the end of, by the end of twenty nineteen, even if the country remained bitterly divided over the over the choice of the politically active majority.
2: Yeah yeah well i mean the recent polling suggests that there's there's some regret going on but uh you know it, it's 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 hard to judge mm-hmm. uh, with the noise of uh of the pandemic going on at the same time absolutely um yeah i mean I, I i mentioned there that there was there is this core argument to your book and and you 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 sort of touched on it there i think which is this idea that um Previous histories of the European Union you, you describe as being the last redoubt of Whig history, with mm. uh, with with uh, with the plot villains being being Thatcher and de Gaulle, and and you point out I think I think rightly that while you're not necessarily sympathetic sympathetic to either of them you you are you 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 simply say that their view of integration is different rather than wrong was was that a, a, a key thing you wanted to get across yeah no i think
1: it is i think the official history the official history not the actual history done by historians of european integration has always tended to uh, give an idea of uh, almost inexorable progress that europe was moving towards uh, you know uh, more power for the supranational institutions of Europe and that this was you know broadly speaking a good thing that there was some uh, that this process was being pushed along by people who were committed to the idea of a more federal Europe or a more supranational Europe at any event and was being opposed by uh, people who were more narrowly nationalist uh, more determined to preserve the um, uh, the privileges and prerogatives of the nation states And, uh, you know, de Gaulle and Thatcher are the two uh, star cases in that. Now, I think if you look at the historiography, just looking at the two cases of de De Gaulle, and and I think actually Thatcher too, it's very hard to sustain this. You know, uh, Whig history, the Tories made a contribution too, so to speak. You know, if you look at um, de Gaulle, he had a different view of uh, European integration from Jean Monnet or uh, Hallstein or... Uh, Federalist uh, supporters of European unity, of course, but uh, I think uh, most serious historians recognize that the contribution that De Gaulle made simply by insisting on France's prerogatives, simply by insisting on certain institutional uh, solutions, was enormous. I mean, one French historian who I esteem very much, a guy called uh, Laurent Wallosey, uh, you know, regards Diggle as a founding father of the EC. Now, that's not something you would have heard even 20 years ago. Uh, Mrs. Thatcher is being re-evaluated too. I think if you look, for example, at the notorious Bruges speech in September tw- uh, uh, 1988, which uh, is claimed both by uh, keen supporters of European federalism and by Eurosceptics in Britain to be the start of the Eurosceptic movement, I think if you look at that speech, it's More a defense of the EC as it always had been, uh, in opposition to the EC that Jacques Delors wanted to construct. Uh, That doesn't make her, therefore, automatically Eurosceptic, so much as sceptical of what uh, Jacques Delors wanted. And and I think that's the kind of thing historians do. Uh, I think, you know, most of the serious historiography on uh, European integration now is definitely moving in the direction of saying, you know, there was this thing called the European community, and then under the pressure of globalisation, um, the end of the Cold War and so forth, it shifted into something else called the European Union. And it's not correct to think of the European Union today as somehow being uh, the logical and lineal descendant of the Schumann Plan. You know? and, and that's what we mean by Whig history. When we talk of Whig history, which, like most historians are critical of, that's what the Whig history approach is. And I don't think most historians can reasonably support it.
2: It's funny what you say about the Bruce speech. I, I interviewed Stephen Wall a couple of weeks ago, and he he mentions in his book that um, uh, t- when he was working for Tony Blair, Blair asked him to bring a copy of the Bruce speech to him. And uh, after he read it, he said he, again, you know, he couldn't really, he, he agreed with pretty much every word. It was... Uh, it, it was a constructive approach to, as you say, to, to, to differentiation between the DeLore and Thatcher version uh, vision, rather than rather than, than destructive.
1: No, I think it's a very interesting case. I mean, in effect, in that book, what Mrs. Thatcher was saying, I mean, it, it would have been agreed with by practically every German and Dutch uh, and many Italian politicians uh, throughout the post-war period, it, and, and it was a criticism. Of the radical and ra- and rapid acceleration that was going on uh, within the European Community at the time, and and what she saw as being the creation, you know, it's the famous soundbite of a European superstate which would roll back um, what she regarded as her fundamental reforms to the British economy, and would take steps towards supranationalism that she wasn't prepared to um, countenance. I. Uh, You know, I think one has to acknowledge that political decisions come out of an interplay. It comes out of contrast. There are contrasts. Some people think one thing, other people think another thing. People argue over them. And what tends to come out is very often something in the middle, or else sometimes people are defeated. Mrs. Thatcher was defeated over Europe. I mean, quite literally, I think it is the biggest contributive cause to her downfall which, of course, was also one of the main reasons why Euroscepticism became so strong in Britain, because so many of the people who are Eurosceptics were also passionate Thatcherites, who felt that the bulk of her, of, uh, uh, of her own party had actually betrayed her.
0: Yeah. Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, in your in your chapter on on Thatcher, you um, you you point out something uh, that I think is very significant, which is is about the Single European Act. That uh, you know, as you say that. During her career in, uh, in Number 10, she was resistant to things, but she was also pro- proactive. And I've got a couple of quotes from the book here where you say the Single European Act was, quote, the most significant step towards greater integration in Europe since the signature of the EEC Treaty in 1957. And, quote, the Single European Act may have been a lower common denominator agreement, but the common denominator was a high one. Do, do do you feel that the that the single european act and the creation of the internal market is is a is an underestimated feature of european integration
1: yeah definitely uh, and i think as i say most of the new historiography would agree with that uh i actually think it started in the 1970s 1970s in the uh, used to be regarded as a kind of barren period if only because there were no particular innovations institutionally uh, within the European community. But in fact, I think most people realize that in the 1970s, the the EC didn't collapse, the European Council was created, the EC took an increasing global role in trade development issues, the treaties were constitutionalized, the Mediterranean democratized and probably wouldn't have democratized without the uh, EC support and so forth. But nevertheless, it remains true that if you were in one of the member states in 1983, in terms of single movement, the movement of goods, the movement of individuals, recognition of um, qualifications and so forth, things really hadn't changed that much since 1963. No, I, uh, I, I first moved to Italy in 19, excuse me if I give you a long answer on this, but I think it's Give a, it's quite good to give a concrete illustration. I, I first moved to Italy at the end of 1986, uh, and when my wife and I wanted to go to uh, visit my family in England, we had to get in the car and drive to the Brennero where the Austrians checked our passport. And we had to use shillings until we got to Kufstein, where the Germans collected our passport. Then we drove all the way across Europe and to the French border, where the uh, the french checked our passports and of course we've been using different currencies all along then we drove to luxembourg where at least at the beginning of this period the luxembourg uh, luxembourgeois checked your passport incredibly you drove across luxembourg for half an hour entered belgium where the belgians didn't check your passport i don't know why maybe they just felt it was really rather silly then you got to, uh, uh, then we used to take uh, the car as far as Zeebrugge uh, and catch the ferry to Felixster. Um where well, the British checked your passports and you had to use pounds. I mean, if you think about it, apart from the British end of that, all of that was changed between 1986 and 1992, or 1993, January 92. The 1992 initiative, which was started by the Single European Act and brought ahead a... Uh, uh, and accentuated by the different decisions taken by the European Council on the advice of the, the law Commission uh, between 1987 and 1992. And and the interesting thing about this, paradoxically, of course, is that so much of that was actually a Thatcherite in inspiration. Uh, Mrs. Thatcher wanted the single market. She was prepared to even give up uh, Britain's veto on literally hundreds of different line items that she once upon a time could theoretically have vetoed uh, in order to get the single market. Uh, Mrs Thatcher, from that point of view, took a very strong position on the centrality of the single European Act. She just didn't want a super state. Uh, she says somewhere, I can't remember where, maybe in the memoirs, she says somewhere the single European Act was kind of clearing the ground, but she didn't want to see a super state erected on top of it. Uh, uh, she 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 saw it as being an open space in which countries compete. Now you know you might say that's wrong, but it's not obviously one. is not obviously more European or pro-European or anti-European than another. Uh, and and I think she just had uh, very much a uh, the, 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 she definitely in the case of Margaret Thatcher there was a, a preference for um an intergovernmental market-based solution to to Europe's future. In the case of Delors, it was definitely a more centralizing, perhaps more administratively centered. I suppose in a way, it's the difference between the British uh and the French approach to political economy. Uh, I wouldn't like to push that 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 too far, but I think there's
2: some truth to that. Do you, I mean it certainly certainly wouldn't have happened to us quickly, but do you think Europe would have got to an internal market uh, even without her and without Arthur Cofield? I mean is it something de would have cottoned on to in any case in order to get to his ultimate target do you think?
1: Yeah, I think it was probably necessary now because you, know, you had the enormous debate about Eurosclerosis. you had the ongoing process of um the ongoing process of globalization what we call globalization now we take it for granted but of course it was starting in the 1980s the uh, pressure on the, the need for Europe to ensure that its domestic market was larger in the face of growing competition. I, I, I think it would have taken longer, but it would have happened, I'm sure. Mm.
2: Yeah, coming back to De Gaulle, um, the other thing that uh, I got a better understanding of from reading this book was the, the intellectual origins of the kind of European policy carried out by people like Chirac and Sarkozy, because I... I was always confused by the mixture of what appeared to be what appeared occasionally to be a sort of federalist ambition but then stepping back um to you know, on 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 core issues and your description of de gaulle's thinking around that put that in you know put mm-hmm. that sort of gaullist tradition of european policy making into much more context it made it more understandable i think
1: yeah, no, I think uh, De Gaulle's vision of Europe was uh, a way of reinforcing France. Um, and France would have been, you know, primus inter pares as, um, when it came to making the big political decisions. I think there's always been a. The French traditionally, you see it with Macron today, have always wanted a Europe which speaks with one voice, as long as that one voice in, in foreign affairs, perhaps even in defense, uh, in, in big on the big questions of uh, of identity, provided that vision doesn't deviate too far from what the French wanted to say, uh, and I think uh, Germany has always been a balancing uh, a partner in that. The the Germans have typically tended to support greater. European self-affirmation, they've tended to allow to some extent the German lead until the last 20 years or so, where it's really become impossible because Germany has just become, relatively speaking, so much more important. I think the countries who don't like this uh, are paradoxically the smaller countries. And I I think the Netherlands in particular is a country which is always very uneasy about uh, Franco-German decisions being taken for what Europe as a whole should be doing and uh, and i think that's one of the reasons why the dutch were uh, so disappointed by by brexit and by britain's attitude over the last 10 15 years towards european integration
2: yeah yeah i mean they've lost the british now um and and that that potential counterweight never really appeared to work but are you are you surprised I, I'm putting words in your mouth in a way because it's something that's always surprised me, but by the inability of the medium-sized countries and the smaller countries basically to form a counterweight block themselves. I mean, you, you're seeing the Dutch attempting to do this with this uh, Hanseatic League and so on, but it, it it never seems to have the coherence that is necessary to to achieve what they want, even even most recently with the um, Next Generation uh, eu budget line yeah yeah
1: Uh, no i think that's an interesting question and to be honest uh i'm not sure i've got an answer to that i've not really thought about that but except in the context of italy about which i know quite a lot Um, and uh italy's never punched its weight either no uh and and, you know you know one says that uh, one's immediate response is well you know Italy, political system, a bit chaotic, etc. Except on Europe, they've been remarkably consistent in their views about what they want. And Italy is, or has been, for most of the period of European integration, the successful economy. It's been struggling the last 10 years, but it's always been a very successful economy. Italy has some very good diplomats. Nevertheless, it never really uh, broke into the Franco-German club uh, and exercised a weight comparable even to Britain's or in some ways even the Dutch. Uh, I think there's no doubt that Paris and Berlin now, Bonn before, have tended to regard themselves as being the main, uh, what's the word, progenitors of any new initiative in Europe. Uh, I don't want to say the EU today and the EC before it was a Franco-German club. That would be radically mistaken. In fact, one of the things that we talk of a democratic deficit in Europe, but one of the things actually which the European community brought to Europe was the fact that it brought greater democracy between the countries of Europe. Nevertheless, it remains true that the central uh, innovations in the history of the European community never got anywhere unless they had joint Franco-German support. Uh, It really is the key variable here.
2: Yeah. Uh, And the the other thing apart apart from that is uh, and you 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 have this sentence where you say the European economic community rose phoenix phoenix like from the european defence community's humiliating failure do you think this is a typical pattern of the eu's development uh you know the mm-hmm. lisbon treaty coming out of the constitutional treaty failure the esm and the fiscal compact coming out of the debt crisis and now this huge next-generation EU uh, budgetary package coming out of the pandemic—it does it require not only Franco-German um, alliance; it requires crisis to be to be for the EU to be creative.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people have said that. I mean, I could add to your list probably the biggest single case of all this, which is the uh, creation of the European Council in 1974 as a response to the failure of the Communities in the uh, of the community in the early 1970s I, I, I don't think there's any doubt that the european project is extremely resilient uh, and that's because the uh, big european countries uh, have invested so much in it um uh, uh, that of course is one of the reasons why brexit is it, such an interesting development but the other countries of europe uh have or at least their traditional political classes, let's put it that way, have invested so much in the European project. Um, it leads them always, I think, to seek European solutions for temporary problems, and that is a source of resilience and strength for the, Europe, for the for
2: the EU. Do you not find it quite occasionally also to be something that they hide behind? I mean, I think most recently of the German response to the to the poisoning of um, of Navalny, that you know, when they were asked for a response, they was, oh, we, we need to go through the European Union in in the hope that the European Union will, will put uh, brakes on it. Yeah.
1: No, I think there's an element of truth of that, isn't it? Uh, uh, I mean, yes. Uh, I'm, I to think of a long answer to that. <laughs> the European Union, I think, is an extremely uh, useful instrument of policy for all the European countries and it's also true it's something that they can hide behind yes. Hmm. Although incidentally you, you, if you just, just yeah. add something to that I mean I think uh, a lot of countries in Europe are far more sceptical about greater powers for the European Union than they say in the public pronouncements and now Britain <laughs> no longer part of the EU they uh, are going to find themselves in a difficult position because they were able to hide behind Britain.
2: Yes, God. I mean the the one that always jumps out to me is the financial transactions tax that they, they got enhanced cooperation to negotiate that from twenty thirteen and, and they've still got nowhere with it. But uh um but that, that's on the on that's on the sort of negative side. On, on, on the positive side in terms of European Union's ability to uh, uh to integrate. Um you you mentioned this this term functional integration in the book, and it seems to me that that's been the most effective glue for the european union it it not glue it's it's the thing that tends to achieve progress i mean most obviously initially with the coal and steel community the, the uh, nuclear community most recently with banking union um what what do you think could be next i mean they're going through a capital markets union uh, process at the moment do you, but do you think there could be something with healthcare following the pandemic or what, what do you think? I don't
1: know. Uh, historians are normally terrible, uh, normally very wary about making predictions of the future. I mean, John Lewis Gaddis, the famous Cold War historian, always contrasts historians, uh, says that uh, historians do retrocasting, not forecasting, like political scientists and economists, but we do have the satisfaction of more often being right. Uh, the... I, my, my own feeling is that the one area where the EU has simply got to uh, get its act together and have common policies is uh, foreign policy. Uh, and uh, the European Union, uh, you know, we're looking at the American election results just now. Uh, it's still not clear who's going to win, but the European Union is uh, out in the world with the United States, which is much less pro-European than it has been for an awful long time. You have the enormous demographic growth and political troubles of Africa. You've got Russia on the doorstep. You've got Turkey practically urging uh, Europe's Muslims to react against their oppressed status. Uh, There's simply no doubt that Europe needs to develop a common foreign policy identity, which is stronger than it currently has. Now, whether it's capable of doing that is beyond my competence to say. But I think that's the area where, uh, if there is one area where the EU needs to start thinking very seriously about, I think President Macron in, when was it, November 2019, which he went so far as to say NATO was brain dead and then went on to argue that in favour of The need for a stronger defence and foreign policy identity for the the EU, I mean, I don't know if he's right to say NATO's brain dead, but uh, I think he was right to identify Europe's uh, key structural problem at the moment as being foreign policy, because the challenges that Europe is facing are so enormous that it needs to have uh, a clear sense of what it wants to do collectively, if it can. Uh, And it's not obvious that it can, can agree on that.
2: I mean, your history shows the repeated failures to to create a meaningful defense identity beyond NATO. Mm -hmm. Um, Do do you think the problem there is simply that as long as NATO exists, um, a defense, a a real meaningful defense identity isn't required beyond what is required to protect the Schengen area, you know, Mm -hmm. the, uh, the Frontex, Coast Guards and so on, that there isn't actually a need for for the European Union to project power? Yeah, I mean, yes and no, I think is the answer to that. Because
1: uh, you run into questions of ideas, uh, uh, of beliefs, ideas, sense of identity and belonging. Uh, There are a great many people in the EU who are passionately Atlanticist. Uh, You know, the Dutch spring to mind in this respect, the British did. You... um, You have countries like Poland and the Baltic states who, frankly, do not believe their European neighbors are a a guarantee against Russia in the same way as the United States do. And also, I think you have another uh, more cultural uh, issue at, at work, which is, you know, for so many European states, the European Union is supposed to be about not being a great power. It was the thing that people were supposed to have turned their back on. I think of Germany and Italy, both of which have constitutional provisions against ever going to war. Uh, and it, uh, European, I think that's why when the European Union tried to develop a foreign policy identity, it was always in terms of uh, you know the neighbourhood policies, the um, uh, spreading European values, the... Uh, the uh, projecting soft power rather than hard power. I I, I find it very hard to believe that European Union can carry on like that. Uh, that's just my opinion. But uh, I, I, I'm a historian and not a uh, not an expert on modern security policy. But I find it very hard to imagine that the, the EU can carry on without a real foreign and defence policy in the future. Mm. And it's this has been one area in which really extraordinarily little progress towards any kind of supranationalism has ever been made i mean you can bring out things like the iran deal you can bring out things like development policy and so forth but on the key issues of defense and uh, what you might describe as global strategy uh, the europe has always tried to stay as close to the united states as the united states would let it
2: hmm. Uh, well, to finish off, um, since this is a podcast series about books, I have two final questions about books. Um, you gave an interview to someone at SAIS uh, 10 years ago where you said your two favourite books were War and Peace and Homage to Catalonia, but you couldn't make up your mind. Have, have you made up your mind over the last decade?
1: <laughs> what well, a nice question, I Didn't expect that. But no, I haven't. Uh, I, I, My... Uh, I don't know the idea of Orwell that marvelous picture Orwell. Uh, I think unconsciously. I don't think he was trying to consciously draw a picture of uh, uh, of uh, honest George uh, in the intricacies of Spanish politics, risking life, trying to kill somebody, pretending that he's an incompetent soldier, where if you read between the lines, he quite clearly was a very competent soldier indeed, striving for honesty, striving for, uh, no, to me it remains one of the greatest uh, pieces of reportage that's ever been written. I mean, I've got a Spanish friend who, uh, who, you know, who who says exactly the same thing. Um, And the other thing, war and peace. Uh, I actually teach a course called, Peace and War, and I sometimes scare my students by saying, you've all got to read this book, of course. It's not on the reading list, but you've all got to read it because so many of them haven't. It seems to me to be uh, something I find, uh, you know, sad, verging on tragic, that people don't sit down and read these great classics of the 19th century any longer. One uh, uh, piece, I think you just get lost in it. I don't know what your reaction was when you read it for the first time. But for me, you're just there, and you're lost in... I mean, the guy somehow manages to create a real history and you feel like you're uh, an observer in the middle of it. I, I think it's a wonderful book.
2: Mm. Well, uh, my second question is uh, a bit more prosaic, which is what book on Europe, on, on the area that you cover, um, have you read in recent years that you would particularly recommend?
1: Uh, I think uh, two. Um uh, Luke van Middelaar's book. Luke van Middelaar was an advisor to von Rompuy, uh, and he has written an extremely uh, interesting book on the European crisis called Alarums and Excursions. I'd really recommend you to, to interview him and get him talking about that. Alarums and Excursions Improvising Thought Politics on the European Stage. Which is about the role of the European Council and how the European Union has been able to cope with some of the crises of the last 10-15 years as a result of the uh, European Council. And the other book is uh, just appeared in 2020 uh, by a German writer, Kirin Klaus Patel, called Project Europe History. That's the English translation published by Cambridge University Press, which is, I think, uh, you know, is one of those books which will uh, change or at any rate confirm the shift in paradigm, which has gone on in the historiography. Excuse the jargon, but it really is a way of saying, right, let's take stock of the history of the European community. He does it uh, in not by narrative history so much as by looking at different aspects of the development of the European community up to the case, up to Maastricht and is really treating the development of the european community differently from and separate to the subsequent um, creation of the european of the, of the european union uh, i think those two books really stand out i think for uh, for the sophistication but also uh, the readability uh, that they have in bringing uh, european integration to life and and the uh, raising important questions for us to think about
2: Right. Well, today Mark Gilbert and I have been discussing his European Integration a political history published in September by Roman and Littlefield. Mark, thank you very much for coming onto the podcast. Well, thank you Tim, it was great.